quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. News continues. Let's hand it over to Michael Smirconish and CNN Tonight. Michael? Anderson, thank you. I am Michael Smirconish, and welcome to CNN Tonight. This evening, the strongest evidence yet that the 2020 election was fair and square. Nevertheless, you're also going to learn how the election denialism movement is sticking around and maybe coming to your town. First, newly gathered data from the six battleground states former President Trump disputed in the 2020 race. The Associated Press reviewed every possible case of voter fraud. The numbers are minuscule. They would have no impact on the final result. Take a look. 25 and a half million people voted in those states. Joe Biden beat then-President Trump by more than 311,000 votes there. And how many votes from those 25 and a half million were questionable? Fewer than 475, less than one quarter of 1% of Biden's victory margin in those states. It wasn't even close. And not all of that handful of votes were even for Biden. And when the AP contacted Trump for comment, he, quote, repeated a litany of unfounded claims of fraud that he'd made previously, and offered no evidence that specifically contradicted the AP's reporting. But like everything else in the mountain of evidence that the election was legitimate, it doesn't seem to matter to those who believe only in promoting the conspiracies at any cost. I've been saying a key question about January 6th remains, what were the foot soldiers told? What was spontaneous? And what was planned? Members of the Oath Keepers group allegedly gathered and stashed weapons in advance of the attack, and cut through the crowd in military-like formation, according to the Justice Department. There's a pipe bomber still on the lam. And more questions than answers about what happened at D.C.'s Willard Hotel, where the night before January 6th, there was a war room. Key players in the Trump world were there, Steve Bannon, Michael Flynn, Roger Stone, and more. Those same lieutenants are now actively recruiting the next batch of foot soldiers for a crucial but quieter mission. We don't have an option at the school board level, right, at the at the county supervisor level, at the precinct level. This is we're taking it. We're going to take this back village by village, Dan Schultz. Precinct by precinct, precinct by precinct, village by village. My guest has been working with researchers to track the effort happening across social media. In an eye opening piece for The Washington Post, he points to how some of the people behind January 6th have now turned their attention to three primary targets, school boards, city and county commissions, and secretaries of state and supervisors of elections. Ron Filipkowski also warned time after time what could be brewing in the days leading up to January 6th. Way back on December 19, December 19, he screen-grabbed messages on Parler talking about, quote, enemies of democracy and building gallows. On December 30th, he spotted a Proud Boys video talking about how they'd go undercover to blend in. On New Year's Day, he showed how Bannon was trying to compare January 6th to D-Day. The next day, he shared an Oath Keepers tweet that warned of bloodlust in Washington on the 6th. 
Ron Filipkowski is a criminal defense attorney, former federal and state prosecutor, former member of Florida's Judicial Nomination Commission, and joins me now. Ron, thank you for being here. So months before the election, you began monitoring these extremist elements. How come? What caused you to do this? Well, at that time, I was just I was a lifelong Republican and I was monitoring the more extreme elements of the party to try and persuade moderate Republicans and independent voters to vote for Joe Biden. So that that's kind of how it started. There was a tweet from President Trump on December 19, December 19 of 2020. This is the one where he said big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Don't miss it. Information to follow. Be there will be wild was also a part of what he put out. How was that message interpreted by the people that you were monitoring? Well, people forget that January 6th was the the third Stop the Steal rally. There were two in D.C. before that, early in December. And we had monitored those. We watched people uh, that were involved in those previous two rallies, some of the same organizers, but they were kind of duds. They they fizzled. There, There weren't that many people there. Uh, the second one was a little alarming because a lot of the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers showed up. Um, but still, it was kind of ad hoc. When the December 19th tweet was sent out by President Trump uh, at the time, I was monitoring their social media pages and they just exploded. They just lit up. And basically, the consistent theme was the boss is giving us our orders. This is the big one. Let's uh, let's all gear up and let's get ready. And and that that was that's kind of like the Proud Boys nickname for Trump is the boss. In other words, and this so, was this was like the, the you know, the bat signal had been put up in the sky and they were all going to respond in kind. I, yeah, I, I can't even tell you the difference between the their traffic on social media from the 19th, from the 18th to the 19th after that tweet came out. It was like night and day and it was very alarming. OK, so. Most of us were shocked by the events that unfolded on January 6th. But as I comb through your social media in the month leading up to the 6th, it strikes me that you probably weren't surprised by the way it all unfolded. Am I wrong? Not surprised in the least. Uh, um, I got a lot of pushback from the people who followed me on Twitter, who have since deleted (laughs) their replies to some of my posts which basically was saying you're being an alarmist, you're the first to stop the steel rallies, not much happened, you're, uh, you know, you're overhyping this, nobody's going to show up. And I said, look, you can't compare the previous two rallies because this one, Trump is getting directly involved. And when I looked at some of the influencers and the leaders, the money that got involved, the buses that were being organized, um, different media platforms telling people to come all across the country, um, I saw, I, I read things from people in California, Washington, Oregon, all saying they were going, and that was much different than the other two, and, and also saying what they were going to do when they got there. So, no, I wasn't surprised in the least by what so, happened. So, Ron, as part of my introduction of you tonight, I said perhaps coming soon to your town, what's going on today? What is now the outreach on a grassroots level? Well, after January 6th, we saw the foot soldiers get arrested. And that's kind of what we were doing with uh, several other people on social media for about a month or so afterwards was helping to identify the people in the crowd. And we did that. Then we started looking, well, well, where are the organizers? Where are the leaders? None of them have been arrested. Where are they now? We started tracking them down. 
watching them form new websites, new organizations. A lot of them came to Florida. Um, and, and I think at that point in time, they were looking, they were trying to figure out what they were going to do. And then we saw um, their goal was to delegitimize the Biden administration with all the election fraud stuff to then disrupt uh, and, and to grift, to, to regain power, influence, and to make money. And that's what we saw them do. And, and they used different issues like vaccine mandates was fuel, mask mandates, CRT they used. Um, they used uh, a uh, the election fraud, obviously, a host of different issues to get people stirred up and to rally to their banner. Okay, but when I, when I now see unrest at school boards across the country, are you telling me it's coming from the same elements? And if so, is it organic or is it orchestrated? Oh, it's very orchestrated and it's the same people. I mean, it's the same people, Charlie Kirk, Steve Bannon, whose show I watch every day. Uh, he's kind of the, the Yoda. He's the evil genius puppet master that eggs everybody on behind the, he's on, he's on six days a week, I think 10 hours a day on that uh, internet podcast, getting people all whipped up. So no, we, we saw the organizations put in place, the mid-level groups like Moms for Liberty and other sort of quote unquote patriotic groups organizing. We saw them sending out scripts of things to read. We saw people traveling. Um, are hey, you are you in touch? Are you in touch with law enforcement? I mean, you're, you're like Inspector Clouseau out there assembling all this data. Are you handing it off to anybody? And also, do the people you're observing are they aware of you? Do you feel threatened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're. I mean, I put my name on it. Most of the people who do what I do are anonymous accounts, um, and I, I decided to put my name on it. Um, so yeah, they know who I am. I mean, I read their traffic when they're talking about me. <laughs> so that, that happens all the time. And, and finally, the, the, the question I asked a moment ago, are you in yeah. uh, working in concert with any branch of law enforcement? And, and were you before January 6th? Did you tell anybody in the, the federal government or law enforcement what you were seeing? I was forwarding everything to the FBI uh, through, their, through their social media account. So yes, things were being forwarded to them. They were being tagged on everything. Um, and, and so, yeah, and, and we try to notify the school boards when we know something's coming and, and let them know. Uh, scary stuff, but we're very grateful. Ron Filipkowski, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me on. What are your thoughts? Tweet me at Smirconish or go to my Facebook page. I will read some social media during the course of the program. Already, this has arrived. Let us see. Uh, what is the difference between a violent protest and a coup if it is shutting down government than does attempting to burn down the federal courthouse qualify as a coup? Dennis, I, I wouldn't have uh, believed that it was a coup when it first happened because it all seemed so spontaneous. It all seemed so organic. But as I've been discussing for several nights here now, there, there were lots of wheels moving in concert with one another. And the reason I'm so eager to listen to Ron is because he's filling in the gap, answering the question that I've been wondering, which is, okay, so you had legal memos being written to, to bolster uh, the Trump White House in their view that they could overturn the election. They were leaning on Pence, leaning on justice, leaning on the Pentagon. But what was being told to the foot soldiers, you've heard me ask. Here's a guy who's been tracking all of that information and that piece of the puzzle, uh, and he's been doing it on his own. You know, he's a lawyer. He's a criminal defense lawyer who's a former prosecutor down there in Sarasota. 
And he's been assembling all the clues all along. One more if we have time for it. What do we got? Uh, One Six Committee is another DC dog and pony show. Nothing will come of it but sound bites and donor cash. Bill, I, I don't agree. I, I think already we're learning so much that we had, we had no idea about. I mean, h- how about the last 24 hours? You know, learning not just about the media personalities that were reaching out for the White House and saying, do something about it, but also these members of Congress who were reaching out on that day. If there were no January 6th committee commission, we wouldn't know that. We'd have closed the book on this entire chapter believing that it was much more spontaneous and unplanned or unorchestrated than the facts that are developing are pointing toward. The Biden administration today releasing top secret files about the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. So what are we learning 58 years later? And why is this taking so long? Investigative journalist Gerald Posner literally wrote the book on America's most infamous political murder. He's here to tell us next. Here's one for the history buffs and the conspiracy theorists. Today, the National Archives released nearly 1,500 documents related to the assassination of JFK, some of which have never been seen by the public. It's been almost 60 years since the former president's assassination, and yet the public still hasn't seen all the documents related to his murder, fueling more suspicion for many. So what's in the new documents and what is the holdup? We've one of the best scholars in the JFK assassination world. He's reviewed the files. He joins us now, the author of Case Closed, Lee Harvey Oswald, and the assassination of JFK. This is Gerald Posner. Gerald, this is textbook stuff for how you fuel conspiracy. Drip, drip, drip. I mean, it's almost like it's deliberate. Uh, You know, Michael, uh, if you were writing it and said, let's make sure that people really have doubts about what happened in this (laughs) case and that we're covering it up, what would you do? You'd hold on to files for 58 years and then still refuse to give them over. I mean, this is absolutely, it's preposterous. And one of the things that makes it so frustrating as a researcher, a historian, a journalist looking into it is that they keep changing the rules. They move the goalpost. So in 1992, after Oliver Stone did his JFK film, you know, Congress decided to pass an act that said 25 years, you, the CIA, FBI, get all the documents out there about the case. Let's get over these doubts. And then it fell in the middle of 2017 when Trump was president. And they convinced him, the CIA did, hold on, don't release them all. And so he said, all right, I'll give you another then three and a half years. And now it falls into October of this year. And President Biden's convinced to give them more time. And he said, by the way, release the documents today, in the December that you really don't have to fight about, that you're willing to let go, and we'll only fight about the other ones next year. And guess what? We found out there's a lot they want to fight about. They only released 1,500 today. They're holding on to about 15,000 more. Well, I saw uh, via the internet, not in print, but I saw a headline from the New York Post late today that suggested there was some revelation. Was there some revelation? Not to make a headline in any uh, newspaper, magazine, or lead off on a newscast. The problem is that the journalists who are covering the news today don't know. Many of them weren't even alive when Kennedy was killed. They haven't covered the case very well. And it's difficult for those of us even who are into the weeds on the case to know what's new and what's not new. And the reason for that is it's almost an example of how not to do a document release. The National Archives is putting material out there, a document's released, but it often has just had a word or a 
sentence redacted and taken out in the past. Now you have to find out where it was originally released, sometimes back in the 1990s, find the document in the hundreds of thousands that have been released by the government, and then compare the two and see what the difference is. The New York Post took a document that said that Oswald had been in contact with a KGB agent just six weeks before the assassination when Oswald was in Mexico City. Now that sounds like a headline worth sure. running. Yeah. The problem is the document that that was being quoted was already public since 1998. The information was out there. There was just one sentence that was fresh and new, didn't add to the story. The Daily Mail fell for the same thing. So did The Sun and a number of tabloids. Okay, well, now you're being a buzzkill, but I do have this question. Is there anything left that you want to know? Do you think there will be a smoking gun of any kind in the documents? Should they all be released? I don't think there will be a smoking gun that proves there's a conspiracy, um, but I do think that there could be a smoking gun. And what I'm interested in is the answer to this question. Could this assassination have been prevented? Mm. That's what the documents might show us. Did the CIA know enough about Oswald's instability in his trip to Mexico City when he went to the Soviet and Cuban missions just six weeks before he killed Kennedy? And did they know that he took out his pistol and slapped it on the desk at the Soviet mission? Did they know that the, uh, the Cubans reported he threatened at one point that he might even want to kill the president of the United States? And then when he returned to the U.S. in October, what did the CIA do? Nothing. They didn't tell the FBI. If they knew about that, it's the same thing as happened on 9-11 when they knew a couple of hijackers came into the country a year beforehand and they never told anyone. I think this assassination might have been preventable. The answer is sitting in those documents. It would be mighty embarrassing to the CIA and the FBI if that's the case. No wonder they're fighting so hard to keep them sealed. Well, yeah, now that makes sense. By the way, I, I'll just say in, in, uh, in thanking you for being here, the book you wrote, Case Closed, which I regard as the definitive book on the Kennedy assassination, takes the very provocative argument that Oswald killed Kennedy and he acted alone. In other words, you set out to do the research and you came to the conclusion, you know what? The Warren Commission got it right. I'm sure you'd have sold more books if you'd floated and bought into a conspiracy theory. But thank you, Gerald. I appreciate it. Thank you, Michael, very much. From, so from social media, what do we have? Uh, let's face it, the JFK assassination screamed conspiracy, Oswald being shot while in custody and all the autopsy irregularities, the magic bullet, too many coincidences to be, you, you know, it's funny you reference the, the magic bullet. Arlen Specter was a good friend of mine, a mentor of mine and someone for whom I worked. And he was very proud, very proud of the fact that he was the originator of not the magic bullet, the single bullet. And he wouldn't allow me to call it the single bullet theory. He would interrupt me. And in that distinctive voice of here, he'd say, voice of his, he would say, Michael, you mean the single bullet conclusion? Because he was convinced that he had proven it. And then of course came Oliver Stone. Next, Joe Biden, listen to this now, Joe Biden should not run again. And he should say that he won't run again sooner than later. That is the thesis of a provocative column in the New York Times this week. It's causing quite a buzz. Van Jones and Paul Begala are here to discuss, and that's next. I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. I always liked the fact that Mondale laughed 
Not only did Reagan laugh and the audience laugh, but Walter Mondale, to his credit, knew it was a great line. When Ronald Reagan famously laughed off questions about his age and capabilities at a debate when he was campaigning for re-election in 1984, he was 73. President Biden, in comparison, is 79 years old, one year into his first term. When talk of re-election comes up, the White House insists he has every intention of running again. But should he? After all, his approval ratings continue to sink, and he has yet to score a win on key agenda items like Build Back Better or voting rights. And he would be 86 at the end of a second term. Brett Stevens, the New York Times op-ed columnist, says no, Biden should not run again, and he should say that he won't run again sooner than later. Quote, the argument against this is that it would instantly turn him into a lame duck president, and that's undoubtedly true. But newsflash, right now he's worse than a lame duck because potential Democratic successors are prevented from making calls, finding their lanes, and appealing for attention. And look, this op-ed isn't just coming out of nowhere. It's based on actual reporting from the Times that there's endless chatter among Dems about who to turn to should he falter. And so there's no plan B. What do you think? Do you agree with Brett Stevens that President Biden should not run again and should say so? That's the survey question on my website right now at smirkondish.com. I'll bring you the results at the end of the hour. So go vote right now. Let's discuss it with two political veterans, Van Jones and Paul Begala. Paul, I noticed that you tweeted tonight in anticipation of being here that you would be speaking about what's being widely discussed in Beltway back rooms. I'm not allowed in Beltway back rooms. So tell me, what is the buzz? Well, first off, you, you know, in the Beltway, they don't want to talk about the fact we have 800,000 dead from COVID or that vast swaths of the Midwest are being attacked by climate change related weather events or any of the real problems. So they make up problems. Uh, but Biden's going to run. He should run. We need him to run. And this is the difference between a columnist and a strategist. OK, I've been both. Brett Stevens is an outstanding columnist. I, I enjoy his column and I read it. But what he's talking about doing is bonkers strategically. He's talking about having the president of the United States make a strategic, permanent, irrevocable move to solve a pretty small temporary tactical issue. His poll numbers are down. By the way, he's at 49 in the CNN poll out today. 49, better than Trump ever was for a single day of his presidency. But here's what would happen. He would trade away some of his power right away, immediately, when he needs all of it, with Putin threatening in Ukraine, with uh, Xi moving in the South China Sea, with insurrectionists having circled the capital only a year ago, uh, with his uh, legislation. It, It just would be crazy. And then politically, every Democrat would spend all the rest of the next three years running for office. The Congress members would hate the senators. The senators would hate the governors. The governors would hate the cabinet. Everybody would hate Kamala Harris, our vice president. This is like a Hall of Fame bad idea. Van, what do you think? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Look, on the timing, I think he's right. Um, I, I, it would not make sense for him to say it now. But I do think that uh, this column reflects a disquiet. Uh, I think that there, you know, when, you, when you think about, this is, is this a young guy's job, uh, the presidency, or, or an older guy's job? Barack Obama came into office looking like a young Tiger Woods, and he left looking like Morgan Freeman. Okay, this is a job that eats up young guys. Uh, So it's just difficult to imagine, you know, this being an eight-year job for a guy who's already in his late 70s. I think that's just just out there for people. And then I do think, you know, I think that Biden needs to look at some criteria for himself. Um, Look, is your progress going forward? I don't think he gets enough credit, Biden, for what he's been able to do. But can he do more? Hard to know. Um, Your public performances sometimes are uneven. 
If they get more uneven, that's a bad sign. And lastly, these polls, look, we got a good win a day, but some of them have not been that good. If your progress is blocked, your public performances are uneven, and your polls are down, you might owe it to your party to let younger legs grab the baton. Paul, there is an answer that Brett Stevens offers to your lame duck argument. Here it is. I'll put it on the screen and I'll read it to you. He says, and what would that mean for the rest of the Biden presidency? Far from weakening him, it would instantly allow him to be statesmanlike, and it would be liberating. It would put an end to the endless media speculation. It would inject enthusiasm and interest into a listless Democratic Party. It would let him devote himself wholly to addressing the country's immediate problems without worrying about re-election. Are you persuaded? No, that's, a, that's such <laughs> fantasy. Are you kidding? It would engender so much more speculation. There ought not be speculation. I'm telling you, I've known Joe Biden a long time, and I know his team. He is running, period, Mm -hmm. full stop. He is in full command of the Democratic Party. By golly, he won 44 primaries and caucuses last time around. He dominated a very talented field. He crushed everyone in his path last time around. Uh, And he's going to do that again. It's going to happen. But the the, the infighting, he's standing astride a really complicated multi-generational, multi-racial, multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multi-gender coalition in his party, which I think is what makes him a good president because he's got a country that that looks like his party. Uh, And doing that is really difficult. The last thing he needs is a distraction from his work and uh, more division within his party. I I just... just, just, Van, Paul Paul speaks with a certitude that Biden is going to seek re-election. By the way, let me make this crystal clear. I want him to live to 120 and be healthy as a horse me, right up until the end. Too. But me I can't too. see him running for re-election. To me, this is all a conversation about when does he announce that he's not going to do it, sooner or later, meaning post-midterm election. You get the final word. Well, listen, if, if he runs, I'll, I'll run right, right with him. I mean, look, and I hope he lives to be 3,040. Like, I, I love the guy. I work for the guy in the White House. I think, I think he's an extraordinary human being. But I do think there is a disquiet and uh, obviously, I mean, look, it would be nuts for him to do it now. I mean, completely nuts. I agree with, with Paul altogether. But I, I, think, I, I don't share Paul's confidence because I just think that I know Biden. I think he'll look in the mirror. He will have his own criteria. And that criteria, if he can't match his own criteria, he won't do it. Van Jones, Paul Begala, many thanks for being here. Thanks, Michael. Checking in on more of your social media reaction. What do we have? Um, Patricia. I think Joe Biden should run again as long as he's healthy. He's the smartest thing going right now. It might just give Democrats time to get their act together. I'll tell you that the person who doesn't want there to be an early announcement, if, if he were not going to seek re-election, that's, in my opinion, Kamala Harris, because it suits the vice president that if he were to decide not to go, that he'd wait until the 11th hour to disclose that, because right now any competitor for the vice president is frozen. Can't go out and fundraise, can't go out and organize a committee, really can't go out and and get a political campaign rolling where she doesn't frankly need to, given the position that she holds. Interesting conversation though, isn't it? Remember, that's the survey question. So go to smirconish.com because last I checked, it was like neck and neck as to whether people agree with Brett Stevens. From Friday Night Lights to Pop Warner, more than 1.4 million kids in this country strap on pads every week and play football. Coming up, new scientific findings that make clear the connection between America's most popular spectator sport and scenes like this, the response to a deadly mass shooting. I've got an expert who played the game and is now leading the way toward understanding the toll that it takes. Chris Nowitzki is next.
The price of playing the most popular sport in America in two images. One, a brain scan of Philip Adams, a former journeyman in the NFL. Scientists now confirm that he had severe stage two CTE, brain disease brought on by head trauma and concussions. The other, a crime scene in Rock Hill, South Carolina, where he murdered six strangers before taking his own life. Football, the unifying thread there, it's so much a part of the fabric of Rock Hill that its nickname is Football City USA. Adams spent almost 20 years playing the game. And when you look at his brain scan, you don't need to be a doctor to see the similarities to that of Aaron Hernandez. He, of course, is the former Patriots player who died by suicide after being convicted of murder. But the impact of the game goes beyond just unthinkable violence. ALS is a disease mostly associated with baseball. It's still better known as Lou Gehrig's disease. But a new study found NFL players are four times more likely to die of ALS than the general public. Boston University researchers were key to the findings on both Adam's brain and the ALS study. The co-founder of Boston's CTE Center, Christopher Nowinski, also played football for Harvard, is a former professional wrestler in addition to having a PhD in behavioral neuroscience. Christopher Nowinski, thanks for coming back. What similarities do you see between this and the Aaron Hernandez case? Well, Dr. Ann McKee noted that both of them had severe frontal lobe damage. So they both had stage two CTE, but it was extraordinary in the frontal lobe. And with frontal lobe damage, you find uh, personality changes and behavior changes, and especially problems with aggressiveness and impulsivity. And so it's not, it, it makes sense that both would be involved uh, both both who had frontal lobe damage might be involved with a scenario like this that, that really just rocks you. Well, I, I think I don't have to say correlation when talking about CTE in football. I think I can say causation because of the work that you and others who work with you have done. But what about a propensity for violence or, as you say, impulse control? Is that causal connection now established? Well, it's something that our, our, we have 1,200 families who've donated brains of former athletes and military veterans to our center. We consistently hear stories about problems with midlife personality changes, aggressiveness, violence. You know, this is now we have multiple murder suicides uh, with former NFL players that have been found to have CT. Everyone that's been studied has had it. And so I think we have to be open to the idea that the disease is causing these behaviors. And that, you know, we need to do more to stop this, to support families, to support children of these uh, men and, and um, you know, just do more. Is there a treatment for CTE? I, I read recently that O.J. Simpson is among those former NFLers who think in his case that he has CTE. The only treatment we have right now is symptomatic treatment. So if you're struggling with depression, there's treatments for depression. If you're struggling with memory, there's treatments for memory, but we don't have anything that we can stop CT with. And that's partially because we cannot yet diagnose CTE with confidence in living people, although we are making positive steps in that direction. We just published a study last week showing that MRIs of people who were later diagnosed with CT showed abnormalities that may help us diagnose CT in living people. It's, it's not an NFL problem per se, right, Chris? I mean, in this case, he was playing football since age seven. No, and that's something that we really have to focus on is that uh, the roots of this tragedy and definitely the roots of this disease come from a choice that he made you know, with his parents at seven years old. But we think about this as an NFL problem, but we are, we've proven we are giving CTE to children who do not understand what CTE is, and they are less protected at the youth level than they are at any other level. 
And, and I, we really have to reckon with that in America, that we are hitting children in the head hundreds of times every year, and we're causing a brain disease that can destroy their life. And we have no idea the scope of it. But I will tell you, we just recently announced that 16 of the first 65, or about a quarter of the uh, football players who stopped after high school that we've studied have had CTE. And that that's an uncomfortable finding. It's not, we don't think it's as widespread as, as NFL players, but it's definitely out there in just high school football players. I'm limited on time, but what's the age at which you think a youth should begin playing contact football, if any? <laughs> well, our Concussion Legacy Foundation has a, a firm program only flag football under 14. There's, there's no reason football-wise or health-wise they, they should ever expose a child to hundreds of hits of the head before age 14. And then, you know, at 14, we still have to have a conversation because there's no safe age to start getting hit in the head as much as football players do. And by the way, not just a football issue, right? Uh, I mean, military no. veterans, also another segment of society that we see suffering from CTE. Yeah, and it's become a big priority for us. We just launched Project Enlist, and military veterans can go to projectenlist.org to both pledge to donate their brains and to seek help because we have diagnosed this in dozens of military veterans, and including nine of the first 11 veterans who served in Iraq and Afghanistan who were exposed to blasts. So it's there, too, and we need to do more there. Christopher Nowinski, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. Martin Luther King Jr.'s family calling for no celebration of his holiday next month unless there's action on voting rights. That's how serious a threat to democracy they see. But that and filibuster reform are not the only things that may need fixing. And that's tonight's Reality Check with John Avlon next. It should come as no surprise that polls show Americans don't like the idea of Congress messing with the state's electoral results. And yet, that's what we saw Republicans try to do on January the 6th. So how can we ensure the safety of our democracy by preventing that from happening again? Solutions are not out of reach. John Avlon has tonight's reality check. That's right, Michael. Look, there should now be no doubt that the United States suffered an attempted coup. But there's still a lot of doubt about what can be done to stop the next attempt. And without real legal accountability and legislative action, January 6th will be just practice. Now, we've been given laws by the Civil War generation designed to hold insurrectionists accountable, from the Anti-KKK Act, just invoked by the Washington, D.C. AG to sue the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, to the 14th Amendment, Section 3, which bars insurrectionists who had sworn an oath to the U.S. from ever serving in government again, to laws in the Federal Criminal Code, designed to prosecute seditious conspiracy or rebellion and insurrection. But there's been little sign that the DOJ intends to use these tools. In Congress, Democrats have proposed much-needed voting rights and election law reforms, but they've been DOA thanks to the Republican filibuster threats in the Senate. And all this has led to a sense of impotence, even in the face of big-lie believers taking over local election offices. When CNN senior reporter Edward Isaac DeVere attended a recent Democratic Governors Association meeting, he found folks fretting that while democracy might hang in the balance, they weren't sure they could get enough people to care to make it a winning political issue. Are you freaking kidding me? Look, I know there's a lot of self-protective cynicism and pessimism out there right now, but difficulty is the excuse that history never accepts. And in fact, 
There are two broad baseline reforms which have received bipartisan support, which could actually be passed this Congress, and they'd help defend our democracy. Now, the first is a fix to the 1887 Electoral Count Act to protect against election subversion efforts. Now, this is the ambiguously written law that Trump's legal team tried to use and abuse to overturn the will of the voters. It's time to fix this hot mess, consistent with the Constitution. Now, the good news is that it's already got cross-aisle appeal, backed by scholars at center-right think tanks like AEI and libertarians at the Cato Institute, recently joined by Republican election law guru Ben Ginsburg in National Review. At the very least, the role of the VP needs to be clarified. The ability of state legislatures to submit alternate slates of electors should be restricted. And the threshold for contesting a state's election should be raised so that the will of the voters isn't usurped by a handful of hyperpartisans in Congress. This is the least we can do to avoid a contested election in a new constitutional crisis. Now, the second baseline is reforming the social media algorithms that have helped our nation go collectively insane over the past several years by elevating the most extreme, combative, and conspiracy-driven voices over actual, factual information. Now, Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen explained to a Senate subcommittee why this is so critical. I strongly encourage reforming Section 230 to um, exempt decisions about algorithms. User-generated content is something that companies have less control over. They have 100% control over their algorithms. And Facebook should not get a free pass on choices it makes to prioritize growth and virality and reactiveness over public safety. They shouldn't get a free pass on that because they're paying for their profits right now with our safety. That's right. And while Republicans and Democrats want social media reform for very different reasons, there are at least two current bipartisan bills that propose modest steps towards fixing our addiction to these socially destructive algorithms. The Filter Bubble Transparency Act backed by conservatives and liberals in the House and Senate, would give people the ability to opt out of algorithms that show content based on personal data. Another bipartisan Senate bill would impose transparency on social media companies by requiring them to release internal algorithm data upon request to independent researchers vetted by the National Science Foundation. This would give the public a lot more information about how our information is being used. These are not silver bullets. They would not solve all that ails our democracy but they are solid steps with demonstrated bipartisan support. Much more needs to be done, but it's the least this Congress can do to address some of the core sources of our democracy's crisis. And that's your reality check. Good stuff. Anger causes engagement, and they have our number in social media. That's that's my takeaway from part of what you had to say. Thank you, John. We'll be right back with some reaction to tonight's program. I'm eager to see this. The results of tonight's survey question, which is this. Do you agree with Brett Stevens that President Biden should not run again and he should say that he won't sooner than later? Uh, More than 10,000 voted. The result, 45-55. The no's have it. 55% say no. 45, not an insignificant number, say yes. Interesting. Begala seemed certain tonight, did he not, that, that Biden will absolutely run again? Uh, Van, I thought a little less so, which is interesting as well. Here's some of the social media reaction that came in during the course of the program. The January 6th committee needs to move fast. If those involved with the insurrection fear that there will be consequences, might be the only way to save our democracy. If Republicans take over the House, it might kill our democracy. I thought the same thing, especially in the context of Bannon and his contempt situation, where a hearing is like months down the road. 
there's definitely an effort afoot by Republicans, people who don't want there to be a full investigation, to run out the clock. And they want the clock to be run out because they're convinced they'll retake the House of Representatives. And if they do, that will be the end, I think, of the January 6th investigation. Also from social media tonight. Identifying the lies are important for history, but has truth been too far abandoned by a party of the country? If we can't convince people of the horror behind what happened on January 6th, then it's not a day of tragedy. It's a day to aspire to. I think that uh, Ron Filipkowski was really an interesting guest tonight in talking about how he, just as a citizen, was monitoring all of the events on social media that gave rise to what transpired on January 6th and and really, I think, brought us a step closer to answering the question of how was it communicated to the foot soldiers on January 6th, what their role was supposed to be. Very quickly, one more if I think I can do it. We need younger and more diverse leadership. My humble opinion is that Pete Buttigieg, Stacey Abrams, and Amy Klobuchar are the future of the party. Let's see them on the ticket. I note, Melissa H., that you did not put Vice President Kamala Harris in the mix as you've identified the new and young leadership. Thank you so much for watching. I'll be back here tomorrow night. Don Lemon tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.